0: This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story. Written and narrated by New York Times best selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold.
1: Hey, what's going on everyone? Welcome to another episode of Lit Pulpit. Uh, My name is Claude Acho, I have with me uh, my friend and fellow pastor and author. Austin Cardi, and we're going to jump into more of James Baldwin's Go Tell It on the Mountain. So a couple quick things, our Facebook group, which you can find in the show notes, that's a way to kind of uh, stay in the loop, ask some questions, share some insights. We we want to learn from y'all and learn with y'all as we kind of uh, do this read-along, encourage y'all to uh, pick up the novel, jump in, and um, it's not too late, follow along with us. If you're not doing that, Keep listening. You can still benefit. But our Facebook groups a way to get connected uh, and be a part of the community in that particular way. If you're enjoying the show, uh, rate, comment, review. Y'all listen to podcasts. You know what to do. Do all that all that sort of stuff. And we appreciate y'all tuning in. Austin, my friend, how are you today?
2: I'm great, Claude. Hope you are. I'm excited to pick this conversation back up.
1: Yeah, man, let's do it. Last uh, last episode we talked uh, – we're kind of setting the table and now we can kind of have like the first little like baby entree uh, or baby appetizer rather uh, and then bigger entree after that. We were talking about the psychological effects of, um, of religion and how that was coming through already in the first sentences of, of the novel, particularly with the character uh, John. And in relation to his father, which we'll, we'll obviously explore more as the novel progresses, but just in relation to the words spoken over him, expectations, uh, the kind of specter of religion in the church. And now we're going to still stay within that first uh, opening section of the book, um, but we're going to look at some of these other characters, some of the characters we meet before we get into the section of the book called part two, um, Prayers, of, uh, Prayers of the Saints. So we obviously meet John. Uh, But there's some other characters that we meet. So do you want to start with John, a little more on John, or do you want to begin to jump into some of these other characters that we meet as we see the Grimes family and uh, the Church of the um, uh, Fire Temple baptized? Where where do you want to take this?
2: Well, I think starting with John makes sense, because even though we talked about his relationship with Gabriel and the expectations on him in the last episode, we didn't spend a whole lot talking just about who he is is and what comes through about John just temperamentally and where his passions and interests seem to lie. One of the things that I don't think we really talked about at all was he's an exceptionally intelligent young boy. Um, And he even talks about it at one uh, point early in the story as being a superpower he has. He realizes one day Uh, that he's able to do something in school that the other children can't do and that this is going to be his power. Um, So he's a very thoughtful, smart young man. Uh, And I think there's actually something we might want to tease out later on as we go uh, through this book where sometimes we can feel as if deep intelligence is in some way antithetical to uh, robust faith. And sometimes people can think that if one is very intellectual and, and, and um, it's really smart that somehow faith is, is something that they, they can't be one of those people that um, mm-hmm. th- that succumbs to that. And so there's a conversation to be had on that. And I do wonder to some degree where that was in, in, in John's kind of wrestling through this story, though, that, that, that doesn't come to the fore of the book. But in and, and, and thinking about characters, I do think it's important we say that John was very smart Had a a, a complex relationship with his siblings, um, particularly with Roy, who we'll talk about here in a little bit, um, was very devoted to his mother. Uh, Those are all things I think are important about John that we didn't really talk about the last time. Who, Who would you who would you talk about?
1: I think John's a good, uh, you know, a, a defining character for the novel. You know, in the chapter that I wrote in, in my book, uh, Reading Black Books, I focus on Gabriel. Um, and partly, you know, I think we're going to have some really great conversations about Gabriel because we, we can, um, I think, connect with this character as, as clergy as well. And so there's that ministerial angle, too. So I really, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always almost in a, uh, in a tragic way, very drawn to Gabriel. I find him very fascinating. But I think John is the right right character to to begin with, and there's a couple of things that we did not touch on in the first episode. But I think as we're as people are beginning to pick up the book and, and maybe get into it a little bit more, we can we can press further uh, in relation to John. We we talked about in the first sentence this sort of um, word that's spoken over John and this this sort of um, identity uh, that's placed upon him, and he's now coming to the realization that this. This thing, this faith, uh, this church, uh, that other see as life giving, he realizes this is actually a suffocation and he wants nothing to do with this. He, he, he's trying to find a way out is how that's described. Um, and he, and that's, that's the tension he's feeling. This comes about, um, from the, you know, violent kind of abusive home dynamic, abusive, abusive religious dynamic in his home. It comes about through changes as he's going through puberty and kind of coming alive and awakening to, to his body and sexuality and these different things. Um, but john is also uh he, he, we're also further introduced into more of the longings of his heart as we get into these first pages uh, of the novel and uh in particular uh we find out that this day is his birthday right so this this is this is a significant day um this is 14th birthday and uh on page 11 uh baldwin describes it um john sort of longing for his birthday in this way um he says his first thought, nevertheless, was, "Will anyone remember?" Um, for it had happened once or twice that his birthday had passed entirely unnoticed, and no one had ever said "Happy Birthday, Johnny" or given him anything—not even his mother. Uh, so, so John is dealing with some stuff on his birthday, right? He has, um, he, uh, he has kind of going through changes in puberty. He's. Um, Kind of, I guess, exploring that. We'll just put it that way. Um, and ha- has some uh, some episodes or moments that he feels uh, this a uh, real sense of guilt and sin and shame around. It's also his birthday, and no one is remembering his birthday. So not only is he living under the suffocation, he feels uh, he feels forgotten. Not only is he trapped. Mm-hmm. He, he he feels as though he's not seen, and I think again Baldwin is smart. There's biblical allusions throughout this novel in in the language, and the cadence, and the pacing. And those who 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 are reading scripture, um, you know, who, and who have who have sat through sermons or given sermons, know that the idea of God remembering is a major theological idea, and it's not just a matter of recall, but a matter of acting for right, a matter of coming through in steadfastness toward uh, a promise, right, toward a relationship that is covenantal. Uh, that's sacred, that's special. And John has this experience where no one's doing that. No one's acting towards him in a way where he feels recognized, loved, and embraced. In fact, the opposite, what the people think is loving, you're going to be a preacher, is actually suffocating. So this again presents uh, to us this sort of um, strange kind of entrapment that john exists within and then on top of that he has roy his brother who has a totally different orientation uh to uh to the family uh and to and to their dynamic um roy is a wild child roy is out on the streets roy is instigating knife fights and and coming home bloodied and uh Roy is not the one that people say he's going to be a preacher. They don't expect anything from Roy. And so John, in some ways, would, would, you, would you agree with this, uh, Austin, that John, in some ways, it seems like he's, he's envious of that, right? Do you, do you, does that seem to, he's afraid of it, but he's envious. What, what, do, you, what do you make of the kind of John-Roy dynamic?
2: I share that same read 100%. There, there is a sort of envy of how little is expected of Roy and also of Roy's just kind of ease and swagger, I think, with the world. Um, mm-hmm. While I think that John covets and appreciates his intellect and the way that he obviously cares about and thinks about things on a much deeper level than Roy, there, there seems to even be some sort of envy for the way that Roy can just be so carefree and take to the rhythms of uh, life at school in the neighborhood in a way that uh, just does not seem open to him. Uh, So I read that in the same way. And one thing that I want to touch on before I lose it that I've really never thought about with this book, but you just gave me occasion to think of, is when you talk about how uh, it says that his birthday was not remembered even by his mother and that this goes to paint just kind of the suffocating nature of... uh, the, the circumstances that, that he's surrounded by and immersed in. I think it also speaks to how suffocated Elizabeth, the mother is in their situation too. Yes. Because otherwise you don't see in this book anything that would suggest that she would forget any of her children, particularly John, that if there's anybody who sees John and who is his champion and understands him, it seems like Elizabeth is that person. So in having forgotten his birthday, I almost wonder whether that's not in some ways Baldwin's way of of showing how suffocated Elizabeth is in their circumstance as well, that she could be so beaten down and overwhelmed by the reality of, of their lives and the hardships that they're under and just kind of the psychological and emotional hardship that she would forget John's birthday because she is his biggest fan and Mm. remembers him on this birthday in a very touching way. Yes, it just seems otherwise out of keeping that she would forget his birthday.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and certificate programs. Begin your master's or certificate program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit.
1: I think that's a really sharp sharp observation, and I think that also there there's sort of a a hint and a trace of something. There's uh it's not just for, it's not foreshadowing. It's this sort of thematic um, connectivity that reading the novel multiple times, as we go forward into Elizabeth's story, we can we get a better sense of like why she why she may forget. Like right? what what is it that's happened to her, and not just what is happening that has created this sort of this outcome. And when we see that, and I think that's something I would maybe put, um, uh, you know, for, for readers to kind of file away, keep in mind as they're reading along is that uh, Baldwin is interested, I think in this novel and in, in exploring, not just uh, what people are, but why they are this way. And I think he does this in a way that is really, um, really sharp and unflinching in telling what he thinks is the truth about these characters. But also in doing that is also, uh, really merciful and dignifying by explaining the fullness of their stories. And I think that's the case, uh, with everybody from, from Gabriel to Elizabeth and to aunt Florence, um, Gabriel's sister, who is a really critical character and who, um, uh, is, is sort of a voice can, can, can be a, a voice of truth in some really powerful ways, um, I'm interested in the scenes that bring uh, John Roy and his mother together um, in some interesting ways, because the point of their conversation, this is on page 15 and 16 in my edition, which is the uh, vintage international uh, edition of people are, if, if I know there's some people that are probably like, what page give me, you know, let's do a close reading. So for, for those of you that, that want that sort of thing, that's, that's the page and um, but their conversation really centers on, um, on, on their dad, on Gabriel, and on how he relates to, um, to their sons, right? And how, how he treats them and why it is um, that, he, that he beats them. Uh, so you have at the top of 17, um, Elizabeth um, saying in response to Roy, Roy says, I don't want him beating on me all the time. I ain't no dog. And Elizabeth sighs and turns slightly away, looking out of the window or looking out into a different realm. Right. (laughs) She's like something, something beyond this, this, this enclosed um, family that I'm in. This, this, this broken dynamic. She says, your daddy beats you. She said, because he loves you. Roy laughed. That ain't the kind of love I understand, old lady. What you reckon he'd do if he didn't love me? And then John later says, mama, John asked suddenly, is daddy a good man? And I think you know John is fourteen. We hear about these changes that are happening for him, uh, physically, all these sort of things. But then he asks the question: "Mama, is Daddy a good man?" And I think this begins to present the dynamics that are at the root of this, at the root of this, this family. Um, Roy is responding to this in one way. John is carrying this in another way, and Elizabeth is is having to to shepherd her children through this uh, in another way.
2: And trying her best to be able to make sense of how to give an answer to that. And I hear theological underpinnings for this, too, that yes, there, there, there's a theology that she's working with that out of her circumstance feels like she has to work with, that uh, the, the beating is because of love. And uh, there's no doubt that that's the same type of thing that Gabriel's preaching at the Temple of Fire baptized and that... Uh, Father James is preaching and that they're hearing. Yeah, it
1: is. It is because we, we, we see that early pages of the word is hard. The church has to be hard. The way of holiness is hard, right?
2: And so that's, that's, that's an entire foundational theological lens through which they're seeing things. And that can tie back to our last conversation about some of the psychological effects of religion that many folks uh, come up under a, a really harsh theology like that, that, um, that, that that our sufferings and hardships are are, are underwritten by and caused by the divine, and it's out of love. And trying to grapple with those questions can leave folks um, coming out the other side many different ways. And uh, one of those is, in essence, to say, like, Roy, you know, well, then what would he do if he didn't love me? The other is for someone to say, well, then... Is is this God good? Is 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 Daddy a good man? Is is God is God even good? Mm. Um so underneath this relational human dynamic we have right here, I think there there's a whole theological superstructure um that, that 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 that's in the background.
1: I agree. I think there's there's a layer yeah, there's layers to this question, and I think that's part of the um the brilliance uh, of, of how it's framed. So there's the Gabriel level, but we've already we've already recognized in the in this first uh, first section, as you mentioned, I think on the last episode, John doesn't want to come to God because it's Gabriel's God, he, and so there's already this uh, you know conflation between Gabriel and God. So really, he's asking he's asking several things here. Um, I think at a historical level, as we get further into the stories of the characters, we're going to see more of the structures of, of, of racism and injustice, and so there's a larger question. Um, that is a sort of historical question that can be then placed um, on the, the the lips of of black people in America and and ask, you know based on what we experience here, is God, is God good? So I think there's a communal historical dynamic to this question as well. And then I think for us as readers of the novel, there's sort of the broader religious question which we mentioned last episode also, is Christianity good, right? Is, is this God good? Is this faith good? If this is what we're seeing this faith produced and we, you know, you, you you know, uh, you know, a tree bites fruit, then, then what is this? Uh, or is, is this question and is this critique pointing out rotten fruit, um, and in pointing out rotten fruit, pointing to, to the, the actual truth and, and real essence of the faith? These are important questions. And, and it's interesting after this, um, um, you know, Elizabeth says that ain't no kind of question. But Baldwin says that she said it mildly, right? <laughs> she doesn't. She doesn't shut down the question completely, right? <laughs> this is a very. This is a very half-hearted response. Uh, and then she responds to the question with a question. You don't know no better man, do you? Well, you know, all the other people at the church seem to act the same, so I guess they don't. Um, but then the little sister says, "Looks, uh, looks to me like he's a mighty good man." Says Sarah, "He sure is praying all the time," and you know, we know, <laughs> we know that the appearances, right, of, of of piety do not necessarily have anything to do with the substance of character, right? And, uh, and so that's presented to us, that's presented to us here. But even if we loop back into, um, even if we look back to, she's looking out the window, this, this had not, I had not made this connection before or even just noticed this. I think an interesting way to think about some of the, characters in this first section um, is also to think about the realms that they inhabit or the worlds that they inhabit. So obviously the first world is the home. We get a lot in the home uh, here in this first opening section of the novel. But then as we get to the end of this section and move into section two, prayers of the saints there, the family is going to church. And the, the majority of the novel then begins to take place in the realm of the church for the most part. But as we're introduced to the family here in this first section, we get the church and we get the world, right? We get, um, we get them walking to church. We get them uh, going through the streets and seeing, uh, seeing the harsh conditions. We get the description that across the street from the church is the hospital. We get Roy saying, hey, all you think there is in the world, mom, is churches and jails, Like there's more in the world than churches and jails, you know what she says, Uh, which is a very teenager thing to say. Um, so there's these different sort of realms that the characters, um, have around them and are presented with and are painted in distinct sort of light. So because of the Pentecostal, extreme Pentecostal holiness tradition, not all Pentecostal traditions are this way, but because of the extreme Pentecostal tradition that, that they inhabit, the world is painted as bad. The church is painted as good. Um, and John and Roy have to grapple with that. So when you think about uh, the way the novel is presenting these different realms or worlds that they inhabit, how, how do you see that functioning? What, what strikes you about, about that sort of um, a framework?
2: Well, to connect a few threads here, I think one of the things is that we hear Roy say of his mom, a young boy say of his mom, you think there are only churches and hospitals. He thinks that's all his mother thinks. Mm. We don't have the rest of the book yet. And yes. Baldwin's genius, as we'll see uh, as we read forward, is the way that he goes back in time and traces uh, the histories of these characters. And we realize these are very complex, multi layered characters. So we'll come to find that his mother knows that the world is a whole lot more than just churches and hospitals. And that perhaps there's a reason that uh she has a preoccupation with um with with the church and 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 the hospital and wanting to keep her children safe. Yeah. Uh that's tied into all of these other themes that we're talking about, not least uh uh just the gross nature of racism in America and particularly uh 1930s America when this is taking place. Um so I think similarly and and analogously. We could be, as readers, like a young Roy if we only read the first 70 pages Mm. and think that we have these really flat two-dimensional characters. But then if we read farther, it doesn't justify the behavior, (laughs) but it also goes further to explain the lives that these folks have lived. And the things that they've undergone, the things that they've experienced, and helps us better empathize with and understand in some ways why they are the way that they are.
1: Mm. Yeah, that, I think that really pulls a lot of pieces together and, and, and it makes me wonder, you know what what would Elizabeth feel at that moment hearing that from, from her son? You know, does that take her, does that take her in her mind back? To the experiences that we read about later in the novel, right? Does you know? Does that is that what happens in her heart when she thinks? Yeah, I do. I do know more, you know. And she goes back to the story or these things that you know will encounter uh, in the pages to come. You know, it really it really begins to uh, to sort of open up the world of these of these people of these characters when when we when we kind of think in the full scope of the novel, which again, if, if folks are reading for the first time, you, that, that can still, that still happens. We'll, we'll, we'll tease some of those things out. But um, if folks have maybe come through the story once before it, it adds another layer that, that, you know, is really, um really, really profound.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. And uh, for everybody who is reading along, uh, I hope and pray that you will move on with this beyond part one, because, uh, as we're talking about so much more of this gets fleshed out, and we begin to understand these characters in a much, a much richer and more profound way. Um, and I'm really looking forward to this adventure.
1: Likewise, I'll give one final word on this kind of piece between uh, the church, uh, the world and then the the home. Uh, obviously, as we see in in the home life for the Grimes family, it's an extension of the it's an extension of the church, uh, and it's and it's a, a abusive, um, a toxic extension. And we're going to see these sort of realms play out throughout the rest of the novel. But already in this first section, we find out that at home, John is. John is named and treated as you know an officer as a son of Satan, right? Uh, but then in the world he's he he gets this sense of dignity, the sense of freedom. Think about the teacher um, that that says you're a bright boy um, as he as he shows his his you know his his uh, his penmanship, his skills. Um, and so I think that's an important thing to hold uh, to hold in perspective as we continue to read for, to to read throughout the novel, and then. For uh, for next time, we're going to jump into um, section two, the chapter, Florence's Prayer. And so to encourage folks to uh, to, to jump in, uh, start reading in that section on the Facebook group. If you have questions, insights, observations, things that strike you, things that are confusing, drop those there. We'd love to uh, share those on the show um, and, and learn with and alongside of y'all as we continue to read. So uh, in the meantime, uh, take up and read, and we will catch y'all next week.
2: Can't wait. Looking forward to it.
1: All right, everyone, take care. Peace.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by Ministry Pivot with Russell St. Bernard. This podcast features important conversations with industry leaders such as Nona Jones, Bishop Walter Scott Thomas, Reverend Dr. Nicole Martin, and so many more. Visit ministrypivot.com or on all streaming platforms.